0: If you've got uh, a Bible there with you, then if you want to keep that passage, Ephesians chapter 6, open, uh, you'll find that helpful. Paul uh, finishes up his letter here with this final call to arms in the battle to follow Christ in everyday life. So if chapters 4.17 to 5.21 that we looked at outline sort of some of what that new life in Christ looks like as we put on some of those uh, good, holy sort of virtues that Christ gives through the gospel, and we put off some of those ways of the old pattern of life, and if 5.22 to nine, what we were looking at the past couple of weeks, shows how that renews our relationships This final passage, 6 verses 10 to 20, shows how we get there. It shows us that it's a battle. That some of the negativity, some of the pessimism you might have felt, as Paul uh, spelt out some of that ideal picture of the Christian in the new life that Christ gives, comes from knowing the reality that actually getting there is a battle, isn't it? Turn with me there to the first uh, three or four verses there, 10 to 13. We see this call here to bear arms. Maybe you know something of the sense of uh, failure to meet that ideal that Paul has outlined for us in the previous chapters. If so, don't be alarmed. I mean, Paul himself outlines that that he experiences this in himself. Uh, Romans chapter 7, he could be summarized by saying that he knows what's good, He loves what's good. He wants to do what's good, but sometimes doesn't. He knows what's bad. He hates what's bad. He doesn't want to do what's bad. And yet sometimes he does. Even Paul himself knows the reality that it is a battle to actually be all that we've been made to be. And the world knows this too, doesn't it? The world knows this sort of sense of frustration, of lost innocence, of repeated failure, of of feeling somehow a bit controlled by some of the things that that urges. Urges that actually, you know, we would like to be done with, but we just find difficult to drop. The world knows this of song best of you by the foo fighters listen to these words here i've got another confession my friend i'm no fool i'm getting tired of starting again somewhere new were you born to resist or be abused is someone getting the best the best the best the best of you dave Grohl, in writing that song writes of it that it's a song of resistance it's about the refusal to be taken advantage of by something that's bigger than you it's the fight in the face of adversity you may know something of that struggle. So in light of that struggle to reach the ideal that Paul's put out there for us and that sort of feeling perhaps, a feeling that somehow you in some way in some area of your life have been gotten the best of, what do we do? Where do we turn? Well what we're to do is to put on the armor that God has given us for the fight. Finally, Paul tells us. Now Paul begins to tie together many of the themes that he's developed throughout his letter, all in this last passage. One of the interesting things would be for you perhaps to do later on. The list was too big to just read it out to you or put it on a slide. You'll you'll just get bored. But the amount of different themes that Paul brings from the rest of the letter all to bear here in this final. A few verses but we get three imperatives three particular commands that bring this section together here and they mark out how we might get to that ideal that Paul has given us against the struggles of everyday life what do those struggles come down to well actually Paul helpfully has earlier on summarized those for us three things. That firstly, it's the course of this world. Some of the struggle of daily life to reach that ideal that Paul has given us of the new man, the new woman in Christ, is that we are tempted and prone to continue to follow the course of this world. So Paul calls them not to follow the course of this world, but we're tempted to, aren't we? That's the first thing. Secondly, that we're tempted to follow the prince of the power of the air that there is an element to it that is demonic, that is satanic. The presence and the influence and the effect of Satan in the world is not a sort of demon in your cornflakes or on your toast. It's not the flat tire where you think that maybe that was him. Ha ha, the cartoon sort of villain. It's just the daily struggle to really believe what Jesus has said and done. It's the temptation to just follow pattern the course of this world and thirdly it's that temptation to follow the passions of the flesh the desires of the body and the mind there's the three struggles now here's our three imperatives we have a summary here be strong verse 10 And then we have the means, and these will be developed throughout these verses, to to put on the full armor of God. We're told in verse 11 and then 13, and then it's explained with all those different pieces of armor, isn't it? And then thirdly, you'll notice the purpose, to stand. Three times we're told in 11, 13, and 14, to stand. Verse 10 here, be strong, we're told. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. One of the things we've mentioned is, of course, we are reading this morning the English. Of, of course, the New Testament originally comes in the Greek language, in which everybody in, in the world really spoke. That was really at the time the language of the world. Now you won't notice in the English there that the two words "are strong" and "strength" are actually different words. They're not the same word. We're told here, "be strong," and the word is "andunamo," and from it we get the English word "dynamic." The root it's the ability. To be strong, to have the ability, the capability to do something. Be strong, have that capability, that empowerment in the Lord and in the strength. And now it's a different word in the Greek where there's kratos and it's about dominion and rule. So what Paul's saying here is important. You might think that that's pedantic. It's well, you know, it it is all about words, isn't it? But he's saying be strong, be empowered because of the strength, the rule, the dominion of God. The place, the rule, the power of God empowers you to be able to follow him. And so incidentally, actually, there's probably two things to say that is is not calling us to do. Two responses not to have. In light of the great ideals of chapters 4 to 5 here, there are two incorrect responses. The first is to in despondency, and that is having recognized your inability, believe I can't ever change. So you give up. That's one incorrect response. The other is the opposite. It's to, in delusion, that's not having recognized your inability, believe you can change yourself. So you get puffed up. Two wrong responses. Instead, we're encouraged, as always, here to recognize both your inability and Christ's all sufficiency. I can change in him. And so God has given in Christ all that you need for justification, for you being made right before God, for your salvation in Christ. And we've sung of that this morning, haven't we? Thank you for saving me. But he also gives you everything you need for your sanctification. That is in the process of you gradually becoming more and more like Christ through the work of the Spirit within you changing you. Earlier on in the letter, Paul has summarized some of what God has done for us in Jesus, in our salvation. In Ephesians 2 verses 4 to 9, we see some of these uh, themes here. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And he's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast it's worth again reflecting on as we have a couple of times just what is being said that the richness of this it, it's saying that you have been saved when you were dead in trespasses even though you have sinned against God you've dishonored him the one who has given all of life as a good gift to you you've taken the gift and disowned the giver called into question his goodness as if somehow there's something outside of him that's better than him. Something that you may need more than him. Something that he's holding you back from. Something that might offer you greater life. And yet you'll have found, just like me, that the thing that offered such life winds up owning you. Winds up controlling you. Winds up trapping you. And gradually killing you. then at that point at that moment god saved you god saves us and why did he do it well he did it simply because he loves you because he loves you you didn't earn it you don't deserve it you haven't contributed it to it and you'll never pay it back he's done it simply just because he loves you and what has he done? he's restored you to life He's raised you up to glory in the heavens. He's died so that you would live. He's come down so that you'd be raised up. He's done this. Why? So that he could continue to lavish his love upon you. So that he could example his love by continuing to give to you. When you don't deserve it. When you haven't earned it. When you'll never pay it back. When you haven't contributed to it. Why does he do it? He doesn't do it because you deserve it. But in spite of the fact you don't deserve it. Good God, who does all of that in saving you, doesn't now leave you alone on the battlefield. He gives you everything you may need for the fight. God's strength is gifted to his people so they may grow and they may reach the maturity that we've been called to. We thought about that in those words of assurance this morning, Second Thessalonians 3, didn't we? That we would attain the glory of Christ, Paul says. That's the goal. And so here's the means. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We've heard Paul speak of putting on before, haven't we, we said in chapter four to five there, and the putting on was putting on the new self. But how do we do that? Surely we know that it's not as easy as simply going to the wardrobe and putting it on, is it? Any of you who have kids perhaps actually will know that the process of getting people dressed in and off a morning is is never so easy again anyway, isn't it? But it's not so easy. It's just grabbing it from the closet. There's a fight there. And for that, we need some armor. And what is the purpose here? Verse 11, to stand. We need the armor of God in order to be able to stand through all the struggles of life. But now Paul wants us to know our enemy. Look at verse 12 there. There's something important, something significant about actually understanding and appreciating who it really is that you're fighting against. Sun Tzu says that know your enemy and know yourself, and you can fight a hundred battles without disaster. And Paul wants us now to know who our enemy really is. If we don't know who it is we're fighting, we'll have no chance of possibly prevailing. Here's the rationale that Paul gives now for this focus, for this need, for this armor. Verse 12, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Ephesus was a city, we've thought about it previously, that was very much enamored with everything that was spiritual and especially with the occult. You can read in Acts chapter 19 of uh, some of that. You can read, in fact, of the way in which the gospel changes the very nature and economy of the city, Acts 19 verse 18. Many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver, Uh, I I did a rough sort of uh, calculation on that, that a piece of silver was uh, the sort of average day's wage. So this is the equivalent of 50,000 days wages in occult books. This is a city that loves the idea of spiritual powers, spiritual forces. And that makes it a different city to the context in which we live in, doesn't it? We live in a very different time, time in which anything sort of spiritual or or maybe sort of supernatural is all discounted. And of course, some of it is ridiculous, isn't it? If you've ever sort of come across uh, on on these sort of late night channels when you're sort of uh, feeding the kids uh, when they've woke up in the middle of the night or something, you know, Derek or Cora and (laughs) all these sort of programmes where they go around these supposedly haunted houses. Uh, Some of it, of course, is complete nonsense. But our culture dismisses anything that is not material. So much so, we might say, and I'll sort of revisit a previous theme I had of ruining great movies for you if you haven't already seen them. uh, There's a fantastic moment at the end of the movie, The Usual Suspects, where a character uh, ends up saying this fantastic line. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. C.S. Lewis tells us that there are two dangers. On the one hand, that you just utterly dismiss uh, anything satanic, anything demonic, anything spiritual, or to be so wrapped up in it that you see it in places that it just simply isn't. Well, Ephesus was on the end of being more fascinated with it. We're on the other side of it. But there's a reality here either way that there are spiritual forces at work in the world. There are spiritual forces in play here. We know from the Gospels, in fact, that actually these forces are terrified of Jesus. And this is what Paul wants to put across here. Here's your enemy. It's these spiritual forces. But equally, they're forces that are defeated. They're forces that Jesus has overpowered and overthrown. These great forces that the Ephesians look to as being the ultimate, Jesus has already defeated. In fact, we read in the Gospels before he has fully done so of them asking him, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us? Before the time, we fight these spiritual forces, but they're forces that Jesus has already overcome and overthrown. We're joining a battle that Christ has already won with the same enemy. And so there's a gravity to it, but there's also this security that it's a battle that's already won for us. Uh, When I used to sort of try to introduce the boys to Sonic the Hedgehog on the old Mega Drive, Uh, you know, they would have a controller and feel as though they were big and playing along. But really, you know, controller one was bearing the brunt of the work and it was, you know, my back that was sore carrying the load. Uh, They're really just jumping around occasionally with tails. I'm the one really sort of doing all the work, aren't I? And this is the sort of picture. Yeah, we're involved, we're sort of a part of it, but uh, don't don't get your position wrong. (laughs) Jesus has already overpowered and overthrown these forces. Therefore, take up the whole armor. And so he comes back to this critical point of taking up this armor so you may stand. There's that call to bear arms. But secondly here, we, we, we get an insight into the arms that were called to bear, called to take up here. Stand therefore, verse 14 we're told. And here's our headline again, which now is going to organize this next uh, section of the passage for us. Uh, it's going to organize this sort of dress list uh, of items, and is the purpose behind it that we may, when all is said and done, stand. so we've reached probably the most famous passage of Ephesians, I I would bet. And yet there's a danger in which we actually sort of resort to a a sort of allegorical teaching. Do you know what I mean by that? That is that allegories where one thing means something else really. Everything is like got a hidden sort of different meaning. And that's not what Paul's doing here. I don't think really the list of armor is something to be poured over to find the sort of secret meaning of what each specific piece is about the point is the main point of I want you to put on the armor God gives you that you may stand because there's a danger that you may not and he uses uh, this sort of metaphor here of armor in a similar way in which he'll use fruits as a metaphor for uh, the work in which God will do in you and the characteristics that it will develop within you it's a metaphor why why does Paul use this particular one well Here's a really obvious, simple stab in the dark. Paul is in prison. He has guards in front of him, decked out in soldier's gear. I imagine that Paul thinks of the armor metaphor because it's what's before him. He's spending a lot of time familiarizing himself with just the way a soldier would look. So he tells us here, having fastened on the belt of truth, It's important to see, and we'll see this as a recurring theme in these items here, this isn't the truth that you speak. Earlier on in the letter, we've been encouraged that actually one of the marks of godliness would be to just speak truthfully, speak honestly. But here, that's not the point. The point isn't the belt of truth, so you speak truthfully, though that might be a good thing and a right thing. This is the truth. Arm yourself, equip yourself with the truth of the gospel that shapes your living. And isn't this so important? And isn't this actually a problem for us in everyday life? And we find that actually, we wind up telling ourselves many untruths in life. I was reading an article this week, 13 Things Unsuccessful People Tell Themselves Every Day. Runs the risk of just making you feel sort of bad at the end of it I didn't, I didn't realize I was unsuccessful. Uh, <laughs> firstly, this person is always doing this to me. Great, now my whole day is ruined number 3 he or she does this just to upset me or i totally suck at this or i'm always in trouble or there's no way this will work or no one bothers to tell me anything or it's impossible or i'll never be good at anything or they don't appreciate anything i do or other people can do this or me i'm such a loser or no one is ever going to want to hire me again well, I'm completely alone and no one is ever there for me. Life is full of many untruths that we tell ourselves of, isn't it? That's so a we to be armed instead with the truth. To know the truth is to live free. Secondly, the breastplate of righteousness. And again, this isn't your righteousness, a sort of self-righteous, self-reliance. It's the righteousness of God that's gifted to me, that saved me that means in the face of Satan's accusations, I can stand. Paul tells us Romans chapter 1 verse 16 to 17, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith or it could be translated, I think it is better this way, the one who by faith is righteous shall live. This matters. This matters because when I falter and when I fail and when Satan is there to accuse me and says, where is the great evidence of your righteousness? What have you done? Why do you still struggle with this sin? The gospel says, I was only ever. I am only ever. I only ever will be saved by Jesus' righteousness gifted to me. And he has given it. And he's not a stingy giver. He doesn't come looking for it back every time I mess up. It's mine. Armed with the breastplate of righteousness. Fitted with the shoes here that we're told to come from the readiness given by the gospel of peace. You see here that the gospel leads to this sort of urgency and willingness in us to go, to go out into the world, living our gospel identities as, as family, as learners, as Jesus' disciples, as, as his servants, as servants of the world in which we're put, and as missionaries, as witnesses to the gospel, as a readiness that comes through the gospel. Next, to take up the shield of faith, we're told. I don't know about you, but for me, I find it sometimes hard to think of faith as a piece of armor or hard to think of faith as a gift, as it's described in other places. Because isn't that just the thing that all of us who are trying to follow Jesus have? Why would it be that somehow that would be something special? That's actually the one thing that sort of unites us, isn't it, really? And yet there's something about wavering, faltering, unspectacular but enduring faith that leads to all the great moments of scripture. And that leads to us, when all is said and done, standing. Equipped with the helmet of salvation here, we're told. Your salvation here protects your head. And so much of the battle, so much of spiritual warfare, really is a mind game. The battle is more often than not fought in the Six inches or so—I don't know, depending on how big your head is. I, don't, uh, I have a very poor grasp of sort of spatial awareness. That six inches might be either too big or too small. But in that gap between your two ears is where ninety-five percent of spiritual warfare occurs. It occurs in your mind. So, I that Paul will say, "Be transformed by the renewal of your mind," Romans twelve. So you must protect your head. God, what it is you believe, what it is you really take on board. And then equip, now we're given the first weapon and the only weapon in this list to take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Of all the armor, the only weapon is God's word. And yet it's God's word that fuels all of the others, isn't it? If you want to grow in any of these things, you must grow in this. It's a very poor soldier who doesn't know how to wield the sword, isn't it? You need to be comfortable and familiar with using that for your defense, for your protection. One of the things you may have noticed about all these gifts we've said, all of them really are things that are gods. They're not our things. It might sound a little bit like, I don't know whether your school will have done this, perhaps, Mine was just particularly vindictive uh, at moments, but uh, it sounds a little bit like this kit is a PE cupboard special. Uh, One of the worst aspects of PE, I actually enjoy PE, but one of the worst aspects was if you forgot your kit, you didn't get out of doing it. What you'd have to do is go and rummage through the PE cupboard for some spare kit or lost kit. And what you'd find was it was all sweaty and muddy. It hadn't been washed in years. It was musky. It was under or oversized. It was horrible. It felt like you needed a tetanus shot just after sort of touching the thing. Every time you're sort of going around, you feel it touching your skin and it just makes you crawl a bit like when you hear sort of chalk go down the blackboard, that and spare PE kit are in a similar sort of framework and recess of my mind. All these clothing items here, like the PE cupboard special, are not your own. They're not yours. But unlike that sort of stinky, sweaty, ill-fitting PE kit that you were made to wear and made you not want to play, the armor that God gives that's not your own is the very, very best for the thing at hand. And so finally in this section here, verse 18, we're told to be praying at all times. When in the battle, you'll be driven to more and more prayer to keep going. And yet, these weapons, this armor, you may listen to, you may think, it doesn't sound like much. How's it really going to help in those moments? And yet, they work. Listen to these words here from Paul in 2 Corinthians 10. For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but of divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Trust then in what God supplies. And then finally, we get this call, this cause to which we're called to bear arms here. Paul finishes by giving us the goal that we're to focus on and to realize that actually the armor, in many ways, is nothing without the sort of drive and determination that you need in the face of the fight. Uh, God speaks in many times, in many ways, even in the Old Testament, we hear of him speaking through a donkey. Uh, And sometimes he can even speak through a manager of Manchester United. I'm a Liverpool fan, and so I don't tend to make it much of a habit to be listening too much to Manchester United managers, but Sir Alex Ferguson has some wisdom there somewhere, and I try to learn even from my enemies. He writes of drive here, For years I've tried to fathom out why some people possess greater drive than others. I'm not sure I'm any closer to solving that riddle today than I was 30 years ago, but I did learn how to harness that power. And as I said, I do know that if I had to pick drive or talent as the most potent fuel, it would be the former. For me, drive means a combination of a willingness to work hard, emotional fortitude, enormous powers of concentration, and a refusal to admit defeat all of that armor is not up to much if you don't have that kind of drive. And so Paul encourages us as we come to the end here, to that end, keep alert, that is to not be asleep, with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And we're given three points there, aren't we? Firstly, to keep the watch. The word there literally is to not fall asleep, don't get careless, it would be a shame if, actually, in some ways, we would become more cautious with sort of COVID rules than with our souls. The encouragement here is to keep alert, to keep watch. Don't forget you're in a war. But, secondly, we're told don't surrender with all perseverance. Keep going. You will be tempted to quit. It may seem easier to quit. Why else would you need perseverance? But don't surrender. Keep the watch, don't surrender, and thirdly, remember the troops, making supplication for all the saints, we're encouraged here. The call is to remember your brothers and sisters who are in a battle also, and to be praying for them too. So now we get... Paul's own prayer request here, and pray also for me," he tells us. And what would he want prayer for at this point? He's in prison, not sure of the ending, but we're pretty sure uh, of one thing: it's not going to end as it seems to nowadays with a Netflix documentary in which they go back over all the evidence and decide, "Oh, actually, he might have been wrongly imprisoned, and he might sort of get out just after a couple of years." That's not how it's going to end. It's more a case of what grisly way is he going to die at the end of this? And at what point? So what would Paul possibly want us to pray for him then? Verse 19, he continues here, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. We see four things in that short sentence there. Firstly, that words would be given. The task of sharing the gospel in whatever venue, whatever form that may be, is always about seeking God's word, not mine. And so he asked that word to be given to him. Secondly, he asked that his mouth would be open to be able to speak boldly. You know, nobody believes a half hearted salesman, do they? So, do you believe? You might need to tell your face, you might need to tell your mouth. Yes, let me open my mouth boldly. Thirdly, he asked that he'd be able to proclaim. And there's something significant in what he's doing there. Sometimes we need to explain. There are many things about the Christian faith that don't make immediate sense to people who've not spent any amount of time in church. And so it needs an explanation. You can't assume that they will just get it. It doesn't make sense, it needs an explanation. But there are other times in which it's not a time for explaining, it's proclaiming. The easiest way I could think to describe this is, we have a repeated phrase in my house, it's you know, quite embarrassing really, I suppose, but there you go. Um, one day, I suppose my kids will, will moan, bemoan my, my, my parenting for it, but uh, there you go. Uh, I'll often say, I'm not asking you, I'm telling you. I'm not asking you a question, I'm not asking you what you think of it, I'm telling you to do something. There's a difference between proclamation I'm telling you and asking and explaining. And here he asked that he would be able to proclaim. He's not submitting a thesis for evaluation to be considered and critiqued. It's I'm, I'm telling you the truth as it is. And then fourthly, what does he ask for? He, he, he asks that he'd be able to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. It's a message that's a mystery until the spirit reveals it. That's the word to be given that you could speak boldly, that you could proclaim and that the mystery of the gospel be revealed for them. For which I'm an ambassador in chains. Do you know, he has been faithful and everything that Paul has been talking to us about in the last sort of couple of chapters has been about how we might be able to live faithfully. But don't get this wrong and think that if you're going to live faithfully, everything's going to go well. Paul has lived faithfully and here he is in prison. But what he's offering here isn't cause and effect. It isn't, if you do good, then you must get good because you did good. And if you've got bad, you must have done bad. Cause and effect. No, he's been faithful and he's wound up in prison. That shouldn't really be a surprise in light of the fact it's a battle. He's just sat line for us. But remember, Paul has had to reassure the Ephesians about his imprisonment. That it's not because he's been faithless, but... Precisely because he's been faithful, he's wound up in this place. So he asked, finally, he may be able to declare the word of God boldly again, as I ought to speak. The tone should be courageous, should be unapologetic. Jordan Peterson writing about truth and courage. says this courage isn't the same as fearlessness, nor is it born to some people, but denied others. For Plato, courage is the ability to recognize what's valuable or not, or what should be feared. It's to know uh, what are real and false dangers. For instance, it's to fear losing a loved one more than your wealth or health. It's to see fairness as greater than popularity. And it's to see a broken nose and swollen eye as proud spoils of defending your younger sister. Preaching the gospel in whatever form, in whatever venue, to whatever audience, takes courage. It takes courage to see the potential loss of popularity, the potential loss of respect and standing in the world, being seen as unreasonable, as less significant than being seen to be faithful before God and telling the truth to people. It's judging the words of Jesus on his return of well done, good and faithful servant as more meaningful praise than that of the world. You see, it's not virtuous to speak or to facilitate the untruthful worldview that so dominates our society. It takes courage to tell the truth. And to say it boldly. And that's what Paul asks for here. And yet, that's not about being offensive. That's not about being argumentative. It's not about being obnoxious. Though that can happen, can't it? But it's not being timid. It's not being shy. It's not being ashamed. As if somehow, actually, we might really be wrong. I'm just a bit afraid to actually put my head above the parapet and say it because I might be found out to be wrong in all this. It's being courageous. The battle of the Christian life is one that affects your whole being, your head, your heart, your hands, your belief, your affections, your conduct. It doesn't end with the mind, far from it, but it begins there. And that is the central battleground. It's fought on. That's why Paul writes that. Hefty letter in order to encourage and equip people who are engaged in this fight. So, at the end of six chapters of Ephesians, what should we do? Where do we end? I don't know if um, this picture will be able to come up on the screen, hopefully it will. Um, If Jacob's able to do that. I wanted to share with you, there we are. Perfect, that's great. Let's just share with you words of another song here. It says, Read about your band in some local page. Didn't mention your name. Weary voice that's laughing on the radio once. We sounded drunk, but you never made it on. Passing through and it's late, the station started to fade. And if I don't see you in a long, long while, I'll try to find you, left of the dial. The song was about the struggle to hear anything other than pop or hair metal in late 80s America. And you know, possibly if you've watched Antiques Roadshow, if you're a certain age, you might recognize this is a very old fashioned car radio. Or if like me, growing up, uh, we didn't have a car, we borrow really old, terrible cars from other people that have these already in them. So for me, this is pretty familiar. This is an old car radio. And what you'll see is you've got the dial there and you can tune it back and forwards and the stations are on all the numbers. But if you were an alternative radio station playing different kind of music, you didn't have the money to get a station on the numbers. In fact, you, you, you were scraping for, for money so much that your station would be before the numbers started. And so they sing this song here of trying to find their friend's band left of the dial before the numbers had begun. If you want to grow in the Christian life, it's a battle for the mind. And therefore, it's a battle for the airwaves. And what it means is that you need to tune out You need to tune out from the noise of the mainstream world around you that tells you to care for fear and love or be apathetic for all the wrong things. You need to be able to tune out of that noise and you need to be able to tune in to the word of God, to the ministry of the Holy Spirit who realigns your affections He reinterprets your experience. He reimagines the place and purpose in the world. You need to be able to go left of the dial. Father God, we thank you for your great grace and your love towards us. We thank you for having called us, called us by name. And Lord, for each of us, we'll have had different stories of ways in which we have Um, not worshiped you but the creator but worship creation ways in which we've subverted the truth the world around us ways in which we've thought that we would find life outside of you but but actually found nothing but death and found the things that promised such joy such life owning us enslaving us killing us But thank you, Father, that in Jesus, you have saved us at the point at which we are dead. Lord, for those of us this morning that have come to a place of knowing and and understanding that and and seeking to follow you in faith, Lord, would you strengthen and empower us in your power in the world? Help us, Lord, to put on this armor, to help us in the battle that we know that it is in everyday life to live as your faithful people in a world that's got lots of different values. Help us, we pray. Lord, for those of us who feel weary from the battle, who are carrying wounds, whose strength is fading, who are maybe tempted to give in, breathe life into us this morning, I pray. Help us to support and encourage one another in the battles in which we each face. And Lord, for those who maybe haven't come to a place yet of understanding all that you've done in Christ for us and and giving their lives to you, then Lord, I pray that this might be the moment for them as we pray, as we are thinking now that Holy Spirit, you might reach into their lives, into their hearts. Lord, that message that is a mystery until you reveal it, you would reveal and Lord, would you help them to take up the armor that you've given to step into the battle, to step into the fray, and to find life in following you. Lord, we thank you for bringing us together as your people. And Lord, help us together as a people to encourage one another, to build one another up, and pick each other up to spur one another on in the battle, to be all that you've made us to be, to live in the glorious life and joy and peace that you offer. Help us, Lord, to not give up, to keep going, to put on the armour and to keep coming to you in prayer, knowing you are able to do more than we could ask or imagine. Amen.